This is a story about a man named Harold Crick and his wristwatch. Harold Crick was a man of infinite numbers, endless calculations and remarkably few words. And his wristwatch said even less. Every weekday, for 12 years, Harold would brush each of his 32 teeth 76 times. 38 times back and forth, 38 times up and down. Every weekday, for 12 years, Harold would run at a rate of nearly 57 steps per block, for six blocks, barely catching the 817 Kronika bus. Every weekday for 12 years, Harold would review 7.134 tax files as a senior agent for the Internal Revenue Service. Rec section 1.469-2BI. Others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day. Hello? Harold just counted brush strokes. All right, who just said Harold just counted brush strokes? Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's by a woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold couldn't concentrate on his work. I can't think while you're talking. You have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. Harold found himself exasperated. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid voice. So shut up and leave me alone. Is from the uh, 2006 film Stranger Than Fiction, which features a man who's experiencing the typical flow of life. According to the principle, you reap what you sow. Some would even call this karma. Harold Crick, he prized routine. All of his life, he, he appreciated, he prized it more than anything else, routine. He feared the consequences of risk, and so he lived a very regimented life. And accordingly, his life produced a fairly uh, banal but predictable result. He had little benefits to his life, like he had a couple friends, he had the, the security of knowing that he was safe and taken care of, but he was also relatively solitary. He reaped what he had sowed. He lived a very regimented, routine, non-risky life, and he produced non-risky, routine results from that life. Our prophet this morning is Zephaniah. God speaks through him at a time when people assumed predictable results to their own lives. Some prophets around Zephaniah's time in the mid-7th century They were predicting peace and blessing for God's people because, hey, they were God's chosen people. They had God's promised land. Things had always gone well. And some people just assumed because things had gone well, they will go well now and forever. Zephaniah, though, was a different kind of prophet. He and others like him, prophets faithful to God, like Habakkuk and Jeremiah, they were predicting punishment. And things going very poorly for the people of God. Why? Because God's people not only were worshiping God, they were now worshiping other gods. And in addition to that, while worshiping other gods, they were using and exploiting other people. So you had two strands of thought going on among the people of God. On the one hand, some people feel like they did good, and so good's going to come to them. 
On the other hand, you have people who feel like they've done badly, and so bad is coming to them. And so goes our destiny. But maybe we haven't considered a third possibility. It's a possibility that our character we just watched in this clip, Harold Crick, is is awoken to in his story. And that possibility is that there is an author to our story. And if there is, in fact, an author to our story, then our story can change. Our story can turn with but the turn of a page, can it? That would mean we're not subject in our life to an impersonal mechanism that impersonally rewards general good and general evil or general bad. But instead, we're subject to an author who's a real person with a real personality and the ability to edit anything he wants in our lives. I'm talking this morning about the glorious reality of what makes Christianity unique, and that is the reality of grace. It's my favorite reality. Grace is God's love made active through an undeserved gift. The author, the author of life, loves us, and he writes about that love. But Christianity wouldn't be unique, would it, if it was just that? Because other religions do the same thing. They say that the author of life loves you, and he writes about that love. The difference with Christianity, the author of the Bible and the God of the Bible, is this this God does something about that love. He doesn't just write about it in the greeting card. He puts money in the greeting card, right? There's power in it. So he does something tangible, something recorded in history. He gets off his throne, he enters into our story to change the course of our karmic destinies. Many of us feel like we're floating in a direction that we are inextricably tied to, that there's no turning back, there's no reversing the current. God gets off his throne, enters into our history to do something about that. So grace is that third possibility. An author intervening into our story to change its deserved course. Prior to Zephaniah chapter 3, Zephaniah has prophesied basically according to how people have lived. If you haven't lived a good life, there'd be no good coming to you. And if you've lived a pretty bad life, you would have bad things coming to you. That's not unusual to us. And Zephaniah preaches accordingly. He says, look, you keep living this way, bad's going to come to you. You keep worshiping other gods and putting other things in the place of God in your life, bad things are going to happen. But then we get to Zephaniah chapter 3, and the author of our lives intervenes by telling us there's a third possibility, this possibility of grace. So in Zephaniah 3, which hopefully you have your Bibles open here, God explains three things. He explains about the need for grace. He explains the requirement of grace. And finally, he explains the reality and result of grace. So, need for grace, requirement of grace, and finally, the reality and result of grace. Let me pray before we get into this any further. God, we thank you this morning for your word. Jesus, you say you compare your words to food, to bread, that we need it. It is, it is grace to us, an undeserved gift to nourish us and help us. But we confess, God, that sometimes your words are hard to understand and apply to our lives. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate these words, help make sense of them, even as I preach, and also help apply them to our hearts and to our lives. Please, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we start with the need for grace, the need. Let's read, read with me here, chapter 3, Zephaniah, verses 1 through 7. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. He's talking here about Jerusalem. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, this is God speaking, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Whenever we read the Bible... Let me encourage you, as I've probably done this many times before, to do so with a pen or a pencil in hand. Have a pen or a pencil in hand. With a pen or pencil, you can jot down just about anything, any kind of observation you notice. One important observation to make when reading God's words is anytime you see key words or phrases repeated, especially when it gets into poetry, right? Because poetry isn't always so straightforward. But when a, when a poet mentions something too, three, four times. You know it's important, right? And so there's a couple things I noted here, okay? First of all, the words morning, morning or dawn, come up a number of times in God's words. First, speaking of God's people in verse 3, talking about lions and predators like wolves who leave nothing till the morning, right? But we see these words again in verse 5 with respect to God. Every morning, he shows forth his justice. Each dawn, he does not fail. So there's a contrast here. And so I've circled morning, I've circled dawn from verse 2 and verse 5, and I've connected them together, as you see up here on the screen, okay? I want to show you one other interesting connection, and I'll talk about it. Verse 2, speaking of Jerusalem, God says she accepts no correction. So I drew a little box around that. Because I also noticed in verse 7, also speaking of Jerusalem, surely you will accept correction. And of course, God is disappointed to see that they do not. So I drew two boxes around accept correction, and I connected them together. I didn't make these connections because I, I, I can read Hebrew or because I have a bunch of books on Zephaniah that told me this or anything like that. I simply read the passage a couple times. I had a pencil in my hand. I said, huh, interesting. These words are repeated multiple times. This must be important to what God wants to communicate, and I would say very much so that it is. The first connection of morning tells me that God's people spend their time one way, right? Morning is a designation of time, and they spend all the time until the morning one way, consuming. They are consumers, and God spends his time, starting in the morning, another way, and that is as a giver, one who does and gives only what's right. The second connection tells me 
that God's people refuse to respond to this truth when they're confronted. So God says to his people, you are a consumer. You live to fill yourself up. Whereas I always do what's right and give. And when God tells his people this, he says, don't you see how you're living? They refuse to listen. That is the basic theme of what's going on here in these first seven verses. We consume to make ourselves right when we are supposed to always do right like God. Verse 3, roaring lions, evening wolves describe God's people. Uh, Wolves would leave. Wolves at this time were were sort of symbolic of a kind of predator who was a a bit of a scavenger who would would take the whole part of his prey and, 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 and sort of lick and gnaw on the bones till the morning time. And God is saying very vividly, my people, you are acting like this. Now, that's meant to contrast with God who wakes up every morning ready to do right towards people. Not consuming, but giving, dispensing of what's right, what's just, and what's good. We are by nature's consumers. By nature consumers because we're empty of what's right. While God by nature gives because he's already full of what's right. So there's a, a hole in us. You talked, maybe heard about people say there's a hole in our hearts because we can't do what is right. And so we try to fill up our lives what we think will make us right and whole again. But it's a bunch of junk. <laughs> Whereas God is already full of what's right in and of himself and he dispenses what's right. Does that make sense? How does that statement strike you? Because it's a, it's a bold statement, right? We may not want to hear that we fill our lives with things like money, with friends who make us feel good, with approval from others, especially authority figures in our lives. And we, we want to get that. We want to fill our lives with that because we feel if we get that, it'll make us whole. Maybe it's good deeds or charitable acts because that makes us feel good about ourselves. Or literally filling ourselves with temporary pleasures like alcohol or comfort food. And that's what fills us and makes us right and makes us whole again. And if you don't want to hear that about yourself, you would be in the majority. You would certainly not be alone. God attempted in every way to communicate this to his people. This is you. You mostly spend your lives consuming, taking stuff for yourself. Verse 2 says that God and others would try to verbalize correction, to confront his people with this truth that you're consumed. But it says she listens to no voice. God's people don't listen to anyone. They only listen to their own moral compass. They only rationalize to themselves. This is what I'm doing. And so deceiving themselves and thinking, this is going to make me right. This is going to make me whole again. Verse 6 and 7 move from verbal correction to active correction. This particular prophecy is written to Judah in the south, part of God's kingdom. But long ago, after the reign of Solomon, God's kingdom was split between the south and the north. South was Judah. The north was Israel. And Judah had just watched her older, older sister, if you will, to the north. Israel rebel against God, rebel against God. God warned her, and then he sent a punishment in the form of the Assyrian army to pillage, enslave, and ultimately deport the Israelite people to the north. So what God's saying here in verse 6 and 7 is that you saw me do this. You saw this happen with your own eyes. I gave you a physical example of what happens if you keep rebelling against me, if you keep trying to make yourself right by filling your lives with things other than me. And yet, they accepted no correction. They refused to listen. It was not enough. 
Even God's attempts at correction were not enough to shake them out of their consuming lifestyle. So this story reminds me, Judah's story reminds me of my own. When I was a young man, I longed to be liked by others and to laugh with others. And that's sort of what I lived for in life. It wasn't complicated. I just enjoyed people and I enjoyed laughter. And that was my life. And I thought, if I just get enough of that in my life, my life will be fulfilling. Right? I'll be whole, I'll be complete. When I got to high school, I went out of my way to select the funniest friends in high school, like the funniest people I could meet. And many of you heard me tell the story how that was the water polo team because uh, water polo guys have to shave their legs and you have to have a good sense of humor if you're constantly shaving your legs as a man, right? And so they did. And I thought to myself, if I get laughter and enjoyment, I'll fill what's wrong in my life, make it right. Eventually, though, I realized my friends and I were just using each other for laughter, for enjoyment. And when some groups of friends or, or, part of, or one friend or another wasn't funny anymore, you know how this is, young people can be, you know, you're just fickle, you move on. If you weren't funny, kind of kicked you to the side. You got shunned. I was trying to get my fill of laughter and enjoyment, however possible. I would do things that weren't typical of what I would do four or five years earlier in my life. It began to change me as a person. I would do things that would anger teachers sometimes, administrators, parents especially. My dad tried to verbally warn me that I was changing as a person, but I did not listen. I refused to listen to his verbal correction, and I remember once making a rude comment to my mom, and my father, at this point, the most angry I've ever seen him in my life, before or since. He's never done this before or since. He's not this kind of person, but he, he took me, by the shirt collars, two hands, and he pressed me against the hedges in my driveway. Yeah, he was very frustrated. Well, I never forgot that moment, and I'm, I'm still embarrassed about it to this day. Um, maybe I'm turning red now. No amount, even, even that moment of correction where he pressed me against the hedges, even that could not change my heart and the direction of my life. I still wanted something to fill me, make me right, and it was not going to be what my dad said it was going to be. It's not going to be what someone else told me it was going to be. I was very much like Judah. In fact, I walked away more resistant to my dad and what he had to say to me. Judah who said, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. That was me. Grace was needed in my life. I needed God to intervene decisively in my life to change its course. And he does do that. He can do that in your life. But first, a couple things are required. A couple things have to happen prior to grace being given. A requirement of God and a requirement of us. And it might sound strange, a requirement of God. God is required to do something. There is a requirement of God according to his own character, and that is that justice must be done. If he's going to lovingly intervene into our lives to save people who are consuming, who are rebelling, who are enemies against him, justice must be done. Read with me verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3 in Zephaniah. This will be up on the screen as well. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Okay, so God is going to pour out justice on what people deserve for going against him, for filling their lives with things other than him. But notice in verse 9, 
For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, which was Egypt, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, they shall bring my offering. There's an interesting like, contrast tension going on here, isn't there? In verse 8, God's pouring out anger. He's pouring out justice. But then in verse 9 and 10, all these peoples who he was going to pour out justice on are all of a sudden now returning to him, worshiping him, and he calls them daughters. Like, that's weird, right? There seems to be almost a contradiction here. And even commentators I read, they, they don't really know how to reconcile this transition from all nations being punished to nations being forgiven and returning to God. How does that work? Because at this point in history, as God is saying this, he hasn't reconciled those two things. It's not so clear-cut as we think justice, is it? It's hard to know, who do I judge? Who do I not judge? But if you just put yourself in God's position, we're not supposed to do normally. How hard would it be to say, okay, I'm going to pour out justice on these people, but these people are good, so I'm going to save these people. They're basically good. They've got a lot of evil in their lives. Who do you judge or condemn to an eternity of punishment? Where do you draw the line for what's just and unjust? Of course, we'd say Hitler... Bin Laden, Mussolini, Stalin, rapists, child abusers, serial killers. Like, that's an easy one, right? We'll say, there's the line, that works. But what about a mother who guilts her adult kids to make herself feel loved and valued? She spends her whole life doing that. Hmm. Well, what about a man who cuts corners on paying duty? Okay. What about the chronic exaggerator? What about a young man who tried to fill his life with laughter and enjoyment? Where would you put them on that line? God's just, right? And because he's just and perfect, he has to punish sin. What would you do? Are we straddling the line, over the line? Where is the line of what's just and deserving of forgiveness and what's just and deserving of condemnation? while no one's more qualified than God. There are certain people who, who we know who feel more qualified than us to draw the line of justice. There are certain people in life, maybe you know someone like this, but mostly we read about them, people who've witnessed the most vile of evil up close, and yet they didn't give in to that evil. They weren't changed by that evil, right? We think of people who lived in concentration camps or labor camps. One such person is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn stood up to the corruption of Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union in the 1940s. He was uh, forced into a labor camp called the Gulag Archipelago. He was in there for eight years, during which time he wasn't allowed to read or write. He was threatened constantly with his life, exposed to various kinds of torture, but he loved to write and he loved to read. And because he couldn't read and write, he, he memorized everything he, he knew and everything he wanted to say. He would get out these matchsticks and actually count out uh, rhythms to help him memorize everything for eight years that he would want to say, and he would one day write in a book. It's phenomenal. After getting out of this camp, he bravely exposed the brutal, brutal nature of the camps and exposed the failing morality of the Soviet Union to the West. People didn't really know about the Soviet Union at the time and, and, and the brutality going on there. Solzhenitsyn exposed them and expose the un- injustice and evil going on there. 
This man witnessed the most vilest acts of evil, including people being forced to stand outside to freeze all night until they denounced Christianity, until they denounced their faith. Alexander was thus asked, where would you draw the line? You're someone who's seen evil up close, and you weren't so impacted by it. Where would you draw the line for justly punishing someone? Here's what he said about that. He said, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But here's what I want to get across. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his heart? Here's the good news. God isn't willing. God isn't willing for that. So his plan is to become a human being who never straddles that line between just and unjust. A human being who only lives good, who only does what is right, only does what is loving. And then he separates himself to be destroyed by justice. He does what Sultan Heatson advocates. He says, if only it were so simple that someone could, we could separate out those who are evil. What Jesus does is he lives only what's good and he separates himself out, paying the price for an unjust life. When Jesus dies on two pieces of wood, so every nation, people from every nation could be saved. It is a strange truth. It's stranger than fiction that God would come up with this plan to save people. But it is his plan to intervene in our lives and to save us. And so he satisfies his own requirement. He is just towards us because he puts his just punishment on Jesus so that he could destroy evil without destroying us. It's wonderful. There's also another requirement, a requirement for us. If we're to know that kind of grace in our lives, it requires a humility to cry, help. Let's read that in verses 11 through 13. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall it be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. You'll notice the theme here is humility. God says those who people who are proud, who think they can change their own lives and fill their own lives with what's right, will be removed. But people who simply know they need grace, who just know they need forgiveness, these are the people I'm going to save. That's what humility is. It's just a cry for help. James 4, 6, New Testament writer James says, very simply, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble's a big word, but all it really is is just that posture of, God, I need help. I didn't know that verse, James 4, 6, when my parents sent me against my will to an international Christian sports camp. It wasn't too long after my dad pressed me against those hedges. (laughs) The only need I had, I thought, was my friends, myself, my fill of laughter and enjoyment. And a speaker one night, he was preaching from 1 John 4. And I just remember these words. He said, Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whatever does not know love does not know God. And I knew in that moment that was me. 
I hadn't really loved. I hadn't really loved people. I mostly used others. Others used me. I'd done bad, and so bad was coming to me. Again, that sort of karmic principle in my life. And here was this opportunity presented to me for the author of my life to intervene and change the course of my destiny. So I, I went, sat outside on the picnic table, and spent the next two hours just crying out for help. I, did, I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do in that moment. All I knew was I needed help. It turns out that's exactly what's needed, to be rescued by God and have the course of your life changed forever. So, so what actually happens that first moment you cry out to Jesus for help? What happens and, and what results? Let's talk about that here in verses 14 through 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The reality of grace happens when we simply cry out for help. And this, this happens in verse 15. The Lord has taken away judgments against you. Again, we talked about this. He takes the punishment on your behalf. There's no purer love than that, than a person substituting themselves for you. It happens all the time. We may not recognize it. When someone's offered sanctuary to, to a fugitive, you, you can't keep them unless you sacrifice your own safety, right? It's either them or you. Parents of children, you know this all the time. If you want to preserve your independence as a parent, you can, but your child will grow up incomplete, less than whole. They'll be stunted in their growth. So parenthood is a series of choices, either them or us. We sacrifice a little of our independence to give our kids a better life, don't we? That's how it works. You can't love an emotionally vulnerable or broken person and stay intact fully. To help them, you have to help them kind of stay afloat. You have to sink a little, right? It's either them or us. I read a great story about this recently. It's uh, from a book by Dr. Richard Seltzer. His book was called Mortal Lessons. And he, he recognized this principle of how God has taken away judgment against us by taking the judgment in our place, by substituting himself for us. Here's what he says. He said, I, I was standing by the bed where a young woman lies, her face in post-operative. Her mouth was tisted in, in a palsy, sort of clownish way. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the ones in the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She'll be like this from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor, the curve of her flesh, nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, she had to cut that little nerve. Her young husband's in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth that I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, so greedily, The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because your nerve is cut. She nodded and silent. 
But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind, of, it's kind of cute. And at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze, because one is not bold when encountering a god. Unmindful, he, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close now that I can see how he, how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show that their kiss still works. He contorts her mouth so she doesn't have to. And friends, that's what God does for us in Jesus Christ. He contorts himself, becoming a man, and a bloody sacrifice on our behalf so we don't have to. God creates us. We turn against him, yet he inexplicably chooses to contort himself on our behalf so we're not contorted. Then he chooses to be with us after paying that price. Look what it says here. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. It's a a plan we could never have imagined, truly stranger than fiction, that a man, that God would become a man and die on two wooden sticks to save us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, reality is, in fact, something you can never have guessed. And this is one of the reasons I choose to believe in Christianity. It is a religion that you would not have, never have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we'd always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It's got that queer twist about it that real things have. Indeed, grace is stranger than fiction. With the following results, we sing, God sings, and God quiets. Isn't this wonderful in verse 14? This is the natural response to grace. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, Israel. Rejoice. Exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. A natural thanksgiving grows in our hearts when someone gives us an undeserved gift that actually changes the course of our lives. They're rare, but God gives us that gift in Jesus Christ. And you'll get an opportunity in a moment to respond in that kind of praise. But you know what? Even if you don't respond like that, God will. God will respond like that. The author of our story is so satisfied with what he has done and who you are that he exults over you with loud singing. He sings over you. That is how pleased he is with you as a result of what he has done in your life. He exults over you. A a word that indicates the highest praise, glory, and honor that one can bestow. To exult is something we usually do in God, but he does in us. He sees glory there. Do you see that? Because I don't see it in myself, but God sees it in me. He sees it in you who've trusted Jesus Christ. And such a reality quiets us, doesn't it? It quiets our souls. You may recall last week we talked about how no one talks to you more than you. No matter how busy you are, every person in here is in this daily, ongoing conversation with their own souls. And oftentimes it's the most negative kind of talk, right? There are scary, nasty, twisted things I would never say to anyone else that I say to myself about myself. And yet here's a God who's decisively intervening in your story who couldn't be more pleased with you. He is exulting over you with loud singing. And that song can drown out any negative self-talk. It can quiet our souls, just knowing that. Finally, verse 17, the Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. That word translated mighty, usually a noun here, an adjective, it's gabor. It means a hero. This is a hero 
who saves. Spoiler alert, in our our movie, Stranger Than Fiction, that we watched at the beginning, Harold Crick increasingly sees his story going in one direction, having that karmic-like ending. He's going to reap what he's sown in his life, a boring routine life with banal, boring results. So he hunts down the author of his story. He pleads with her for help. In the end, she decisively agrees to intervene to change the course of his story. This is God's free and undeserved gift of salvation. Grace, truly stranger than fiction, a glorious and unlikely truth. All we have to do is cry for help. He can change the course of our lives. And now we get to respond with praise. Let's stand and do so now.